0: Welcome to the Secrets Women Keep podcast. I am your secret keeper and confidant, Lauren White. I'm a qualified counsellor and sexologist, madam of a secret society, author of Permission, and a witty, highly intuitive lounge room dancing introvert. I help you as an exceptional woman in entrepreneurship to see, love, and trust all the parts of yourself, especially the unseen. Let's pull back the curtain, light the candelabra, and remove the mask. These are the secrets women keep. Hello, and welcome to the Secrets Women Keep podcast. I'm your host and confidant, Lauren White. And today we have a super special guest. Her name is Justine Dean. It's Justine's mission in life to provide connection, trust and safety with her clients in a way they've probably never experienced before. She asks, how can we look at what's causing our symptoms of imposterism? Justine is someone who's got the courage and temperament to manage us when we're blocking ourselves and someone who can show us the fun parts of letting all that shit go. She's done the NLP, the hypnotherapy, the timeline work, and ultimately the word coach just doesn't describe her accurately enough. To me and to everyone else she meets, she is so much more than that. Justine, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. What a wrap. I love it. I'm so honoured to be here. (laughs) I'm
0: so excited to have you here. So, so excited. So I'd love to give everyone a little bit of backstory as to how our paths have met. Yes. Um, essentially uh last in twenty twenty Justine and I were both um were both a part of a five day challenge that our now mentor Susie Ashworth was running and It was so fascinating as soon as I saw your Facebook profile, there was that instant sense of recognition it was like. I know her, I like her. I know her, I like you. My intuition just started going ding, 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 ding and it was fascinating to me and what ended up happening was you, I had already committed to the program but you were circling it and I asked you, are you in? And you said, not yet. And then I <laughs> privately messaged you, which I never do to a stranger ever, 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 but I privately messaged you and just said, Hey, I'm already in. If there's anything you want to talk about. And um, from there, we just became so close, We're the only two Australians in the freedom experience and, but it's so much more than that. It's so much more than where we both happen to live. Uh, we both understand women's work on a whole other level and there's this beautiful it's like a Venn diagram where our work just kind of
1: overlaps. And oh, it's a beautiful crossover.
0: Yeah. full crossover. And um, in all honesty, Justine has been an incredible confidant to me in the last six months or so since I've known her. And I've got no doubts that the depth of that connection will continue long after we're not in the same group program together.
1: Yeah, this is going to be a lifelong relationship. I knew that right from the get go and you were very <laughs> cheeky when you reached out and when I when I said not yet it's because I knew I was in but I just needed that extra just that extra piece and it was so heartwarming to have somebody reach out and be excited to know me and be excited to hold my hand so the feelings very very mutual.
0: Aww, soul sisters, I, can- I know. <laughs> <laughs> Now we are going to get in straight away with the big questions because that's what we do here on the Secrets Women Keep podcast. We are going to start by talking about bathroom store moments and I define a bathroom store moment as one in which you're trying to hold it all together as everything feels like it's falling apart. You are bawling your eyes out, you've got snot dripping down your face, you want to be seen by someone, you want to be how do you want to be acknowledged, but you also want to be invisible in the same breath. It's the ultimate dichotomy. Justine, have you ever had a bathroom stall moment and feel free to substitute bathroom with car or office stall or anywhere that you've needed to cocoon yourself away from the world?
1: Um, probably not in the context of the women that we coach. I know you and I both have spoken to a lot of women who might be out at a dinner and they just have to excuse themselves and go to the bathroom. For me, it was a bit different because I was raised not to express my feelings, not to have any outbursts. So there was a lot of shame around me falling apart. I believed I had to stay very strong. So for me, bathroom stall moments, I was sitting in the Todd River in Alice Springs, bawling my eyes out alone and I had wandered down there by myself because I had just have had to put my son on a plane and send him back to his dad in Adelaide. Um, I had lost custody of him to um, an aggressive, heavy-drinking guy and it was um, just, just the most lonely, shocking, heart-shattering experience and I think it's the first time I really – realized how alone I was um and that was just basically by the way that I'd I'd been raised
0: Mm. Mm. do you think that if you had been raised differently your capacity to cope in that moment would have looked and felt different
1: oh absolutely I didn't trust like I was betrayed by the very people who who are supposed to teach you about safety and self-love and self-respect um So I didn't. I couldn't call my parents because, you know, my mum was the perpetrator of some of the psychological abuse. Mm. Uh, So I was never. I was taught that it's not safe or that I don't have the right to actually feel anger or or fear. I always had to deal with that by myself. So had I been raised with someone who validated my feelings and helped me talk through stuff and gave me a safe place to fall apart, I would have um, felt more comfortable reaching out. But I think I was sort of taught not to trust women and I was also taught that I must do everything by myself. Mm, Okay. Mm.
0: And can I ask how did all of that, after that moment, that very vivid memory that you just shared, how did your ability to move through that, what did that look like?
1: I had to keep going I had to function because um, I wanted to be in a position where I could see my son every four months that's what I was allowed to see him every four months so I flew him up from Adelaide so I needed I just needed to keep going Um, what it taught me was that uh, uh, I can deal with anything like Mm. you don't know what you can deal with until you're faced with it and, you know, you literally think you're going to die, that you're not going to wake up the next day, that 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 the the overwhelm is just going to kill you. So what it taught me was resilience and it also taught me um, that it's, it actually feels good to have a release, even though it, when you're doing it, it doesn't feel that good. But afterwards, there's some sort of physiological release and you're not so wound up.
0: I think you've just touched on an absolute piece of gold there, Mm. the physiological release that happens when you've had the bathroom storm moment that trigger, triggers that survival response mm. that release there's something about all right i would love to hear what your what your perspective is for me it feels like there's something about it's the elevation from rock bottom and you realize oh shit that was the deepest darkest experience and anything here from anything that happens from here on out feels lighter, it feels more, I feel like a greater sense of
1: possibility. It. I think release is the right word. Absolutely. Um, I actually hadn't released anything up until that stage ever in my life. I really hadn't lost it you know, and really let my emotions come out. So we internalise so much, and then we we heap shame on top of that, and expectations, and what we think other people should think. So this to be able to just have a full release and a snotty, screeching, bawling, you know, convulsive um, bathroom stall moment um, shows you when you get on the other side of it how you physically feel better your posture changes um it also shows you that you that you're okay that you can be okay like you can just completely fall apart because we do this when we're on our own nobody can see us and the interesting thing was I was even ashamed of falling apart even though I was in the middle of a, a sandy river with nobody for miles I still felt ashamed of letting go mm. it felt weird Mm. And I think once you've done it once, then you go, right, okay, I need to orchestrate this again next time I'm feeling wound up because it's actually good for me. Yeah, cathartic, right,
0: cathartic. Mm. And where does shame, when it lives in our body, where does shame have to go? It's got nowhere to go until we process it on a very physical level through our emotional states, through those high-intensity Outbursts. It's not Mm -hmm. gonna. You're not gonna feel a release from shame just from a whisper or a brief bit of acknowledgement. I think it. It's necessary that it's the full throttle
1: version of things, as uncomfortable as that is. I think we're afraid of it. Like I I read a lot of books about a lot of things, and I Mm -hmm. think books don't hold you to account, and they also don't give you that physical experience. So when it happened and I completely fell apart, I realized that, I I don't know, it's just, it's next level stuff. It's not something, I think it's something you have to go through on your own and you have to allow it to happen and get right into it. Because that's the other thing I had held back for so long, I didn't even know how to fall apart. So it was actually disjointed and hysterical as in upset, hysterical, and then I'd calm myself down again and say, no, 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 and I'd feel, felt my body suppressing and building up, and I thought, shit, I don't even think it was conscious. It would have been subconscious saying, no, you need to let this go. This has got to come out or it's going to do damage on a cellular level.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in some ways, from what you're saying, the bathroom stall moment is damage control. It prevents something even worse from playing out. A hundred
1: percent. Yeah, absolutely. Because we get to this like a bathroom stall moment is like on a pressure cooker when you flick the bell on the top, and it's and it just lets a bit of steam out. Um, if you don't do that, the lid blows off, and just the whole kitchen gets sprayed with food, and then it takes a week to clean it up. This is about acknowledging when you're feeling that build-up and, and you're, you know, you know a ton more about this than I, but I've noticed when I feel the build-up coming, I've got to do something to get it out, otherwise it does get worse and the more we hold it back, the bigger it gets.
0: Mm. And just the last question about bathroom store moments, mm. why do you think we need to go through them on our own? I feel like you just started to touch on this a few moments ago, but why do you think we, it feels like there's the, the main ingredient is we're on our own. Why, why do we need to be on our own when we're so hardwired for belonging and connection as humans and as women?
1: I think the bathroom stall moments are incredibly unique in that in that aspect where it's such a deeply personal thing. And if you're with someone else, it's very different from having facilitated coaching and having a bit of a meltdown there. It's completely different, actually. I've got goosebumps, full body. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's something we must go through on our own because it's about trust. It's about trusting ourselves. It's about trusting that our body can cope with it. It's about releasing stuff because it's not about being alone to go through it because you feel ashamed of it, of, of actually falling apart. It's about being alone so that you trust that you've got your own back. You know, we... From, from, from my experience with clients who've gone through this is that when they were kids, they were taught it wasn't safe to fall apart. Mm. So the best way to learn to do something that you're afraid of is to face it and to see that it's not as big as we make it out to be. Cause a lot of people attach meaning to what a, a breakdown like that means. You know, they might say it means I'm weak, I'm not capable, I'm not good enough, like it totally reinforces everything that they believe that's not good. But I think it's about trusting yourself and that's why you've got to do it on your own.
0: I love that. I love that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes complete sense. I just I feel like my mind could have a field day with that one but you've tapped into something necessary there's some sort of primal need to be on our own so that we can learn to trust ourselves that we've got our own back that we can survive that we can survive on our own doesn't mean we should survive on our Mm. own but that we actually can because up until that point we haven't let ourselves see that or feel that because we've been avoiding avoiding that uncomfortable moment
1: i think so and um Another thing that's just come to mind, if you look at some tribes around the globe, some women will go away and birth on their own. And when I was watching a show about that a few years ago, I thought, and they were describing it as a, a rite of passage, as a um, a ritual, as something that was incredibly empowering
0: mm.
1: and even though it's a different scenario, I think it's similar in that she had to trust that her body was going to do what it needed to do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cause that's and, I, what can, and that's what can happen on the other side of a bathroom stall moment is a exactly. moment of birth, a moment mm. of rebirth of yourself.
1: Um, well, some of those so, moments you're actually letting go of the version of you that you thought you had to be you know, to keep everybody else happy. It's that fuck it moment. It's like all of this pressure built up. I have become a version of myself that I am not to keep everybody else happy, all of that imposter syndrome bullshit. And I've had enough. It's And even though you don't consciously make the decision, maybe subconsciously, your mind's going, this is not who you are. This is bullshit. You are, your nervous system is shot. You need to stop this. And that's where you just go, "Ah," and it all just comes flying out.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned imposter syndrome. So, you have worked with a lot of high power women. Um, you've worked a lot of, with a lot of women in the corporate and public se- sectors, and you were the first person to tell me that 70% of the population experiences imposter syndrome at some stage in their lives, which absolutely blows my mind. You went on to say that two thirds of those are female and most of them are already high achievers. Let's just let that sink in for one second. 70% Mm. of the population, two thirds of those are women. Most of them are already high achievers. You went on to say that imposter syndrome doesn't just show up in the workplace, but that women can feel like an imposter in their own personal lives. And I had no idea, I had (laughs) no idea that that was a phenomena. So could you share more about what imposter syndrome is and how it can infiltrate all the aspects of a woman's life?
1: yeah sure. I think the first thing I want to dispel or discuss is that it's called a syndrome. And to me, when you call something a syndrome, it indicates that it's rare. Uh, so i' I'm going to start talking about it as imposterism, because that's one of the terms of reference that's used for it, as opposed to imposter syndrome, because you know when you when you realize that you've got symptoms of imposter syndrome you isolate yourself even further. One of the things women do is not talk about it. Um, but the way that it infiltrates our lives, like at work, you'll have um, the people who will apply for a job that they really want. Part of them knows that they're capable and the other part is, you know, feeling like a fraud, but they get the job and then they freak out. Because they're like, how on earth did I get the job? This must have been a mistake. Somebody's going to figure out that I'm a fraud. And then they're constantly on their toes. They can't relax into the position. They're comparing themselves against their peers. They're just waiting to be caught out. Um, And when you um, have symptoms of imposterism, you can't accept praise or acknowledgement. You know, women just won't do it. I think for women, imposter syndrome is more prevalent because we're still amongst the the patriarchal male-dominated working environment where we were made to feel not welcome or like we didn't belong in the workplace for so long. And there's still a little bit of legacy stuff that sort of compounds the feelings of imposter syndrome. Mm. So with in the home, in relationships, let's look at relationships. So if you don't believe that you're good enough and you don't believe that you belong, you are going to choose or, and, and what you will do is look at a man or look at a prospective partner and you'll admire and, and, you know, be attracted to them. You'll decide that you're not good enough for them. So you won't go on a date if they ask you, or if you do go on a couple of dates, you'll stuff it up because you don't believe you're good enough. It's that feeling of, I've had women who have got a beautiful husband, a great house, couple of lovely kids, and they feel like an imposter because it can't be this good. I don't deserve this. Someone's going to take it away from me or they'll stuff it up themselves.
0: Mm.
1: And that all ties back to childhood trauma.
0: Uh Aha. Okay. That was going to be my next question. What Mm. is at the root of imposter syndrome? Could you share more with us what you've learned in all of your work, your deep work with women over the years and the connection between childhood trauma and imposter syndrome?
1: Yes, yeah. The fascinating thing is so so with imposter syndrome, you don't have to have like this, you know, there's not a preclusion that you have to have had anxiety or depression or even trauma to experience mm-hmm. symptoms of imposter syndrome. Um, a perfect childhood, one without any, you know, sexual, psychological or physical abuse or illness or injury can still cause imposter syndrome. This is what I've found over the years because you imagine that your mum is a perfectionist and she always looks lovely and she's, um, you know, uh, on the tuck shop and dad's successful in doing his thing and your older sister's playing sport and your brother's at university. So everyone around you is doing really well and everything's okay. Um, And then as a child, you might start comparing yourself to all of these wonderful people around you and decide that you're not good enough. I'll never be like my big sister, you know, and, even, and so you might strive to be like that but you'll never believe it because we make decisions when we're kids based on the emotional maturity of a five-year-old. Um, but the decisions that we make back then never change unless we do the work because it's subconscious.
0: Mm, okay, so we decide from when we're younger and then we allow that decision to continue to play out because it's familiar
1: to us. It's because we believe it. it's not because it's familiar, you know the sub- so uh I've got a good one um a woman that I work with that is very, very high achiever has three degrees, and uh she is a perfectionist, but she also procrastinates, and she her, her colleague had four degrees now she was fine until she found out that her colleague had four degrees, and that's when imposter syndrome kicked in for her and she flipped out and she uh, became quite paranoid and nervous and started to drive herself further. And um, we looked into it. And when she was younger, her brother was born with a disability, a learning disability. And so her parents said to her, well, they sort of, they just said, you'll be fine. And they just left to her to hurt her own devices and really focused on him, which is completely natural. But she decided that she could so, – so it's like a dichotomy. She decided that she needed to just keep going and be a good girl and do well at school, but she also couldn't do too well because she didn't want to make her brother feel bad. And so you get – you. so it's like her core belief was I've got to be a good girl, I've got to be successful so that I – you know because otherwise you know it's not okay according to my dad her dad was very you know let's look at your report cards but if she did too well and got too much praise her brother would be upset and the mum sort of overcompensated quite considerably for that so she decided so imagine how confusing that would be for a 12 year old girl I've Mm. got to do really well but not too well not too well that makes the
0: threshold very very thin like what is that that
1: how do you measure that
0: extremely how do you meet that and how do you meet that consistency
1: so she moved countries and came to live in Australia and she went and got three degrees and very very high accomplished in a university and found out that a colleague that she was about to do work with had four degrees on an offhanded you know conversation and she said it just triggered her I'm, oh, now I've got to get four degrees. I'm not good enough. Like I can't even do the project with her now. She pulled out of the project. This is before she spoke to me, pulled out of the project. And I said, why did you do that? And she said, well, she's got four degrees and I've only got three. It It's actually quite irrational, um, imposterism, because you're not, Maya Angelou and Albert Einstein both suffered terribly from it. Mm-hmm. Now she wrote, ele- by the time she'd written 11 books, she was still suffering with it feeling like she wasn't good enough. And the other interesting thing about imposter syndrome, um, from what I've read, is that there's actually no level of enoughness. So we don't believe we're enough, so we'll do more, but there's actually no level of enoughness that you get to the stage where you're like, right, I'm comfortable in my own skin. I'm not comparing myself to others anymore. Mm. Um, I don't need to overwork. I don't need to perform. I can just be who I am.
0: Hmm. So that would keep someone suspended in a form of survival mode because you never you never feel safe you never feel grounded in yourself you never feel satisfied you never feel fulfilled the bar just keeps moving well beyond your reach and there's never mm. an end
1: point and the thing is we're the ones that keep moving the bar we mm-hmm. set the bar and we keep moving it mm-hmm. yeah and even when the evidence is completely contrary you you like even just in your personal life i don't you know you would have come across people like this who who have a suitor and the suitor is saying you know you're beautiful and i love spending time with you and this is so much fun and she can't enjoy that present moment she can't even enjoy being loved and appreciated because she doesn't believe she deserves it
0: mm. so what's the ultimate fear of the woman experiencing imposter syndrome whether it's in work or life that they're not good enough Mm. and when it. that when that when they don't feel good enough what's the what's the kind of chain reaction I think almost everything I've ever heard ends up being either death or homelessness like what's the and then I'm not good enough and then what happens then what she loses her work then she loses all of her connections how does it does it play out any differently for the woman experiencing imposter syndrome
1: No. Uh, Yes, it does. It does. It's different because um, a lot of the high achievers I work with will stay at a plateau. So they actually limit themselves. They achieve at a high level, but they're exhausted. Mm -hmm. They're exhausted from people pleasing. They're exhausted from the emotional energy it takes to procrastinate over something because they're afraid of failing or they're a perfectionist. So they're exhausted from doing all the things and double checking and triple checking and laying awake at night and going through the checklist in their mind of, You know, have they done everything that they need to do? Is there any loophole where they might get exposed? Um, I've had women say they lie in bed awake at night thinking about their colleagues and measuring themselves against their colleagues. So Mm -hmm. it is, you know, that actually will, I guess, eventually implode because the women that come to me are ready for help. They've realised, I don't understand what's going on, but I know what the cost is now. Mm -hmm. And the cost is you become a version of yourself that you're not and you're buggered all the time and Mm -hmm. you're pretending to be okay and you're very good at wearing this mask.
0: Yeah. 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 Wearing the mask is exhausting. Wearing Mm. a mask is exhausting. Yeah, Absolutely. absolutely. So we decided to call this episode The Secrets We Won't Tell Our Friends. Yeah. Now, This is still related to imposter syndrome. It's it's all connected. And Mm. you had so much to share with me on this, and I still don't know all the answers. So I'm (laughs) going to know what secrets we won't tell our friends. Pray, do tell what secrets won't we tell our friends?
1: We will not sit at a cocktail party, or even if it's a tea party with our girlfriends and say, you know what, I really don't think I deserve you guys as friends. I don't think I'm good enough to sit here with you. We won't say, you know what, I think I've, I think I've really made a mess of my work situation because I've been wearing myself thin and I actually missed something important. We won't sit there and say, I'm really ashamed of how I'm feeling because logically I know it's not right. We won't share with other women about our bathroom stall moments because that's why we go to the bathroom to fall apart because yeah. we're holding on to all of this shit. Yeah. There's so much shame around it. Um, do you remember when we had that conversation, just to help jog my memory, because I remember I said a couple of really cool things to you and I've completely forgotten what they were. Is there anything you wanted me to expand on in that space? With, um... with what we don't share with our with our friends yeah I'd love you to I'd love you to
0: I and and what was interesting was when we were talking about this episode you said it wasn't that we don't tell them it's that we won't tell them and the inherent difference between won't and don't and yeah and I found that absolutely fascinating I was like whoa like that yeah just totally changes um that totally changes The landscape, doesn't it? Because it's like I could tell you, but I won't tell you because that will cause a series of ramifications that I don't know how to handle or I don't want to deal with.
1: Yeah, I've I've actually coached two women who were close friends. Neither to this day know that I coached the other, and both were high profile, high flyers in the same industry, and neither knows that the other one. Is the person they lie awake at night and cry about that they're never going to be that good. Each could very easily, when I asked them, talk about the gifts, um, you know, the talents and skills and the contribution that the other woman makes to their job and to the people around them. And equally, each couldn't see themselves in that at that caliber and it was absolutely fascinating and these and I said why don't you have the conversation oh I would never tell her that and instead of you know I said so do you guys talk about this no 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 and both of them said I would never tell her that I would never tell her what I'm thinking and I think the gift, what we need to do is start conversations about this and actually bloody sit down and talk. I facilitated a conversation at a conference um, about two years ago, and we got to ask whatever questions we wanted. And the way that I opened up was uh, I said, you know, I feel really honoured to sit here amongst people who have because I don't have a degree and I was raised you're nothing without a ticket my dad said you know a ticket so you know mum was very much you've got to go to uni well I didn't and so I believed I was nothing without a ticket and I was sitting in um, a table and there was 10 of us they were all had at least one degree they were all high profile um, in, a, in an industry that's international and I said you know I feel so great sitting amongst you and I'm really honoured and uh, I think, I can't remember how I opened it. I think I said that. And I said, you know, it's really funny that I'm feeling a bit squirmy about sitting here amongst people who've really got their shit together and who are doing amazing things. And one lady sort of cocked her head and looked at me and another guy looked away and I said to her, what are you thinking? And she goes, I was thinking the same thing and I'm their boss. And we were at the table with them and she said, you know, I look at these guys that I work with and they're my employees and I just think how amazing they all are and how the hell did I end up being in this position? The conversation that opened up, and this is the thing, it doesn't fix imposterism, but it it just takes this huge weight off when you get that other people feel the same way. Mm. So it's about starting those conversations. But we won't tell people because of vulnerability. We don't want to be vulnerable, even in front of our closest friends.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And
0: the risk there is that we have an intense shame hangover and that we can't retract what we've said. Like what we've said is out there, whether it's spoken, whether it's in a message, whether it's any any written anything format, it's out there. It's like, oh, I can't grab that piece of information back and put it
1: back <laughs> inside. can't take it back. It's out there. Because, so, yeah, one of the biggest things is that uh, what do other people think about me? Mm. So it, it's a perceived risk. And this is the thing. It's a perceived risk that if I actually start talking about how I'm feeling with my peers, that I'm not going to be able to take it back. And what are they going to think? But looking at the stats, 70% of the people at the table are feeling exactly the same way as you.
0: So you said it's not the cure to imposterism, but it's an integral piece. It's starting that conversation, being honest, owning how human we are, owning that we all look to other people. Uh, to check in with where we're at and how well we think we're doing, and that's all pure perception mm. what is there an is there a cure for imposterism and imposter syndrome
1: i so anything that i've spoken about today is not the truth it's my truth. I think imposterism hangs around. You can definitely reduce your feelings and get to a stage where you have a more healthy level of assessing your capability and your worthiness um i don't know that it ever goes away. i I still experience it all the time the container that we're in i look at the other women and go shit you know am i ever going to be that good and look at that website and i just sit there and sulk i'm like oh my god my words like i can't write like that so it does hang around but it doesn't eat me up it doesn't consume me and it's mm. it's more that i'm just aware that it's there as opposed to before when i was obsessed with protecting myself wherever i went obsessed so i would never i was working in public relations at Ayers Rock resort and I, I couldn't understand why international companies cuz i was taking care of the companies that came in and I'd get job offers every probably twice a week I'm like why do they want me I'm just a PR person working in a rock you know and um I used to be really worried then I was paranoid about well why what's going on and what are people saying and now do I have to really lift my game even more so it was exactly so I just kept raising the bar I've got to be more I've got to be more um whereas now I'm like you get what you see I say shit sometimes and I'm rather brash and um, what I love about where I'm at right now is that I give less of a shit about what people think and that is the relief inside of that is amazing mm-hmm. and I think um, I, I tried to fix it in inverted commas on my own but it's not something, it's one of the few things that you just can't do on your own. You need a human to help you and facilitate it. Yes, yes. I heard a great quote the other day, you can't read the the label from the inside of the bottle. And so anybody who's suffering from the symptoms of imposterism knows what's going on but they can't see it. Mm. And so you need someone from the outside who's really clever at asking strategic questions because they're questions that you won't ask yourself. They're questions that your friends would either never think to ask you or wouldn't have the courage to ask you. And and it's inside of those answers that are procured from the right questions that you will get your freedom.
0: Yes.
1: Oh, yes.
0: Let's just pause for a moment. <laughs>
1: There's actually a great book called Questions Are the Answer and I can't remember who it's by, but I strongly recommend it. It is absolutely brilliant. All of the answers are inside of you. I'll get a bit coachy here for a minute. All of the answers are inside of you and you you may have locked them away and you may have blocked them away and they could be subconscious or you just don't want to deal with them or whatever. And people say, oh, I don't know. I don't know. If you ask someone the right question, the answer will come out.
0: Yes. Yes. And what you've touched on there and what you are touching on is the full circle experience of bathroom store moments needing to be alone and needing Mm -hmm. to be in isolation. Even though the answers are all inside of us, we still need facilitation. We still need other people. We still need someone to help us extract those answers. And that's, Mm. that's where the sense of togetherness and the sense of belonging becomes 101% necessary as Mm. the antidote or at least one of the antidotes. And it feels Mm. like, ah, that feels like, that feels complete to me. Yeah. It it closes the circle. It closes the circle completely. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you, you know a lot about love languages and personality profiles. Do you think either of these play a role in whether a woman conceals her real self from her friends?
1: A thousand percent.
0: Ooh, okay. A thousand oh, okay. Thousand I didn't know what you were
1: going to say. So yes. this is interesting. Yes. Please, I'm waiting with beta breath. <laughs> because the listeners can't see the look on my face. <laughs> So we have a personality that is you, like with personalities, people think that they're purely genetic, but they're not. They're circumstantial and environmental as well. Mm-hmm. So you are shaped by your experiences as you grow up. You know, if you're experiencing any kind of trauma or um, illness or injury or, or something and you've got people that you're modelling from, so that shapes your personality. And, you know, I... I Uh, and also then you've got love languages into the mix as well so who people suppress who they are just because I'm really exuberant I take up a lot of room when I'm full of energy I'm a bit of an ambivert I love that word I only just discovered it Mm. because I'll go in and just buzz and light the room up and be so freaking excited to see everyone and they're all excited too and then I've got to go away and hide but um when I was a kid I was like too much you're too much so uh, I remember being dragged into the office when I was in grade two and I overheard my um, the secretary saying to the principal, she's got a personality clash with her teacher. So we hear what personality clash is, but nobody ever explains what it is and the fact that um, you can actually do something like how to get over it. So When you have a particular personality type and people make it not okay, it's not okay to be who you are and it's inherently who you are. That shoves a bit of shame on you. So if you're really exuberant, I was told that I was too much. So I toned myself down and I didn't know who to be because that's inherently who I was. So I had to tone myself down, but then I had to perform, uh, you know, for certain certain things in my life to actually get out there and be excited and then pull back. So we're constantly confused about who we are. Then you add love languages into that. Um, This is a whole nother, like it's a huge Pandora's box with personality types and love languages because if you understand them and use them together, you will have the most beautiful, deep, connected relationships better than you were ever imagined possible Mm. um we don't understand other people's love languages we have ours and we don't understand why other people you know because i'm sort of words of affirmation and physical touch and my husband's quality time and none of the others so he's happy if i'm within a 50 meter radius of him whereas i need you know to talk so you can imagine how somebody, a child growing up has either been told they're not enough or they're too much purely by what their personality type is, or if you've got a child who's physical touch and their parent is not, and the child comes up for a cuddle and the parent pushes the child away. so this child is all of this, as I said, it's a huge conversation to have. But every incident, every single incident, every time you're told that it's not okay, that you can't do that, you can't have that, you can't be that, you can't feel that, the confusion. We just sort of get inside ourselves and implode. And we as adults grow up, we don't know who to be. So we look at everyone around us and we become a version of what they are.
0: Yes. That's where the, okay, all right. I can see, I'm starting to see a spider's web of Mm. trauma neglect, abuse, uh, even like just even events that are challenging. It might not necessarily be traumatic but mm. challenging or isolating events and then that influencing personality, that informing the person about their love languages or what's not safe to have as a yeah. love language because yes. those, those needs aren't going to be met anyway. Yeah, yeah. And then wearing the mask through life to try and, Mold themselves to be what they think they should be in any given context,
1: Mm. and it's a—it's no wonder we have no fucking idea who we are. Yeah, we don't know who we are. We're just being what we've become in order to to survive, and that's what's beautiful about unpacking this with a client Mm. because I call it reparenting, because they haven't had, they either have had someone to model from that is just not achievable or they've had people to model from that are very toxic. Yeah. And so not knowing who you are, imposterism kicks in beautifully and then it's compounded by all of the limiting beliefs around who you are, what you feel, what you want, you know, your wants and desires Mm. as well. And so no wonder we don't want to express ourselves. It's no wonder we don't want to trust anyone as it is. I believe women have been taught that another woman is a threat no matter the environment. So that's another reason we don't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. But can you imagine, can you imagine just relaxing? Can you imagine understanding your personality type and, and I've had a grown man stand up in the audience bawling and ask to speak. And he said, I am 37. And for the first time in my life, I've realized that who I am is okay. There's nothing wrong with me. And he was persecuted by his family. Huge guy, like rugby, athletic, huge yeah. guy, but extremely quiet and passive and gentle and not really motivated, just a happy guy. And he was, he was told you should be a rugby union player. You should be a, um, I can't remember or something, you know, like manly and all this stuff. And the relief of that for him was just like expansive. Um, so imagine getting to know yourself on a whole new level and imagine not having to lie awake at night and think about all of that crap and just being able to sleep peacefully. Imagine being able to be present with your, colleagues Mm. Mm. imagine
0: not be putting yourself by their side measuring yourself
1: up in your head totally out of your body or feeling threatened exactly out of your body that's a really big one yeah we spend so much time disassociated from ourselves we're dragging ourselves around like a puppet and flogging ourselves yeah yeah Just imagine, like, what's it cost? I say to clients, what's it cost you so far when we really sit down? And because a lot of us will deny what it's cost us. Mm. And so when you have a conversation with someone, they're like, oh, missed opportunities. Um, I'm not present with my family. I've rejected a couple of beautiful relationships because I didn't think I deserved it. I went for that promotion and got it and then stuffed it up because I didn't believe I deserved it. Everybody else did, but I didn't. Mm. And when people start sort of looking at that list, they realise what it's cost them.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll never forget a client that I had once who came to me for sex therapy and it was incredible. in her having a safe place to release all of her experiences and her sense of imposter syndrome around sex and relationships, mm. um was well into her 30s and hadn't had a, a medium to long-term relationship at that point in her life. And just meeting up with friends after we'd had, I think we'd had maybe four sessions together. And it was after the four sessions she caught up with a friend and a friend was like, what is different about you? Yes. It feels yes. like... Your cards aren't so close to your chest, and she, she wasn't necessarily saying anything different, but she was, she'd let the armor down. She was being a little bit more vulnerable. She was there was a light inside of her. It wasn't that she wasn't constantly in that self protection mode, and I just think that real life experience is priceless, absolutely priceless yes. to be seen like that by someone who knows you and for you to have that special source, that secret ingredient that people Mm. can't quite put their finger on but Mm. they feel more connected to you. You don't necessarily
1: have to reveal all. This is one of the
0: things. You don't have to reveal all to your friends if you know, if you're pretty certain that they can't hold you in that. That's why people like Justine and I do what we do because this Mm. is our work, is to hold people who feel like they can't be held by someone in their personal life or in their profession. Mm. So that to me, that is just like the beaming smile, the, the lightness in the body, the oh, the fullest, being in our fullest expression is just the absolute gold nugget we all deserve. It and is. And you,
1: yeah. And you hit the nail on the, the head is that you don't have to tell people what you've done. They can see it.
0: Mm. Yes. Because
1: it's on a physical level. Yeah. It's not just emotion. It's on a physical, it's a physical release, just letting yeah. go of that stuff. And you are more present with them. You're not, yeah. you know, I've had people say I'm more, I feel like I'm more, I'm there. Whereas before I've been driving on automatic. Mm. You know, when you drive, and this is a great analogy, you know, have you, you sort of drive and you go 10 Ks and you're in city traffic and you pull up at the lights and go, shit, I don't remember the last 10 Ks. Yeah. Like you get a fright. That's how a lot of people live their life. Mm. So they they get up and then all of a sudden they're at work and they don't remember having breakfast with the kids or driving to work. And what this kind of work does is bring you back into your body and bring you back into a beautiful part of your mind.
0: Yes, yes, That's why we do what we do. Yeah. Love it. I'm obsessed. Um, so, we've talked a lot today about what women conceal and why. What are three mm. things that you want women struggling with being their fullest selves or being their real selves to know?
1: That they are not alone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You are not alone. At least, you know. At least 70% of the people in your workplace or your, you know, circle of friends and family feel the same way to one degree or another at some stage of their life. Um, The second thing is you need a human to facilitate things if you want to feel better and overcome your symptoms of imposterism and learn how to manage it on a beautiful level as opposed to a survival level.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. and the third thing is start talking about it. Yeah. Start talking about it. Find ways to bring it up in conversation, even if it's even if you get yourself a couple of cool opening, you know, open questions that you can throw out when you're having drinks with the girls, or throw out during a, a conversation, even at a toolbox meeting in a workplace.
0: Yeah,
1: because it's, yeah, inside of those conversations is where it's going to. It's really going to help a lot of people.
0: Mm. Yeah, sage wisdom. So I'm going to repeat those three. You are not alone. You need a human to facilitate you moving through imposter syndrome and owning yourself. And the third thing is you need to start talking about it in your ordinary, everyday life, in whatever, Mm. with whomever and in whatever context makes you most comfortable to do that. Just start having the conversation. Mm. Now, I have some quick shoot questions for you. So answer these as quick as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, don't think, just respond one word or two. First question is, what's
1: your favourite sensation? Soft sheets and like a and a weighted blanket and really cold, crisp air. Oh,
0: I love all three. I, you've teleported me somewhere already. Yeah, um, yeah. What's your favourite secret place?
1: Up in um, the Atherton Tablelands at Lake Tinaroo, there is a giant curtain fig tree and it's hundreds of years old. It's, at last count, over 200 large staghorns nest up the top of it. It's very high and it's got hundreds of tendrils coming down. And as a little girl, I used to go there and just look up and it was just very ethereal spiritual I just felt like I was home and I just love it it's so it was just mm-hmm. magical and I actually cry when I go there I did, the tears just fall out it's beautiful that
0: sounds healing that it's sounds super like a, it's amazing yeah, it's like a need
1: for connection
0: yeah 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 what's one secret talent
1: you possess <laughs> I can can pick stock. So when I – I used to run a sheep and cattle station with my ex-husband and we would go to the sales to buy um, a bull or a ram for the the livestock that we had and I would walk in and do a quick assessment and it was uncanny. I would pick the beast and – then I'd just put my mark on it and walk away because I had nothing to do with it all. And at the end of the day, my ex-husband and his dad would always choose the beast that I had chosen when I walked in. And I was really good at breeding, picking breeding stock and uh, always did well at the markets.
0: (laughs) That is a very secret skill. That's a very, very intuitive one. That's what I I like about that. (laughs) You just know. Is it a case of I just know or
1: I just see? Like you, just, I see. It was Claire. Yeah, yeah. What's that one where you just? I saw it and I knew that that was like a high um, quality beast. Yeah, yeah, mm. I love it. Uh, what's your secret pleasure? Oh, a Thai massage, a long one in a dark room. Yes.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I really wanted to change language from guilty pleasure to secret pleasure. Yeah, I love that. That that guilt, it should not, the word guilt and pleasure should not go together. So I really, yeah, and what you said is a secret pleasure. It's not guilt attached to that, right? That's right. Just is, and it feels good. Mm -hmm. Um, Who's one woman who's really seen you?
1: I have to say Susie Ashworth um when we did the 5 day gig and she um she dm'd me with a voice a couple of voice recordings and I messaged back one message and she saw me on a level that just went right through me and I that's that was the clincher being seen like really seen yes yeah.
0: yes Love it, love it. That is such a special gift that she has. And, oh, it's one in, one in seven billion, one in eight yeah. billion. It's yeah. just really, really supersonic. Mm, mm. Yeah, love it. And that feeling of being seen is it gives me life.
1: Oh, absolutely. And what about, when, what about you when you know that you're seeing someone and the look that they get on their face, it's when it's difficult to describe, it's like it's the first time they've really been seen. So they look yeah. a bit like surprised. That thrills me. That it's thrills really me. Emotional. It's such a humbling experience, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. I've got a big smile on my face. It's moving. It's emotional. It's life breath giving. It's just, it's just one of the big things that I live for. And in that moment everything that's been a challenge just fades away into the background Mm. and everything that has felt challenging to get to that moment to sit in front of that person just falls away it just it just makes up for everything that's that's given me a bathroom store moment it's like oh Mm. it was not worth it for this moment (laughs) it was that's my experience I'm a bit like that Last one, one one-on-one conversation or mingling through a
1: bustling soiree? I used to be a bustling soiree. I could walk into a room and light everyone up and wander around and be the charming person, whereas now I really, really love a deep, connected one-on-one conversation. Mm -hmm. So that's shifted for you over time. Huge, because I don't have to entertain everybody. I already get that I'm great and fabulous and fun, (laughs) but I choose depth and connection now.
0: Yes, yes. Well, I've certainly felt connected. To you, not just in today's podcast episode, but through all of our Facebook, we're on every platform chatting to each other. Every single platform that exists, I chat to it's you. Like, on. I see you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's me. Um, I've certainly felt connected to you. I've certainly feel connected to your message and your wealth of wisdom that you have graced us with today. I am so grateful, and I know women are going to be able to breathe a sigh of relief from listening today to hear all of your pearls around imposter syndrome and the friendships that we keep and why we just can't go that little bit deeper. And more Mm. importantly, how we can start to go that little bit deeper, Mm. that it is possible that you don't have, that things don't have to stay, the mask does not have to stay on. It can certainly come down. It can come down slowly. It doesn't have to be Mm. you ripping it off because that's probably going to keep you in a sense of survival. You Mm. can just gently remove it and Mm. start to wade out of the waters of not enough and into ownership. That's what I've taken
1: from you today. That's beautiful. You're so eloquent. I love it. (laughs) I love you. Okay, Justine, where can we find you? You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Justine Dean Official, and my website is www.justinedean.com.
0: Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, I hope this episode has contributed to your understanding of your secret self. If you've enjoyed it, please share it on Instagram and tag me so that more women can feel seen and understood. And if you never want to miss an episode, then subscribe. So you don't miss a whisper.